And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 97, PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Sunday, September 19th, 2015. Okay, it's Emmy night, folks, so it's who should win and who will win. Predictions abound. Of course, by the time you hear this, it'll all be over except the critique of the host on social media. So will Andy Samberg come out and do a musical version of Fifty Shades of Grey? Probably not. Will there be some music video with him? Yeah, most assuredly. Will there be some joke about nurses as the camera pans from one of the hosts of The View? Oh, yeah. Will somebody make a joke about Donald Trump's hair winning an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor? Probably. About building a clock? Yeah, sadly. Will Kevin Spacey talk about stories and mention the itsy bitsy polizzi in his acceptance speech? No. Why? Well, because House of Cards isn't going to win anything, so we'll see very little of Kevin Spacey in general. Will Kit Harrington spend the red carpet up about his hairstyle and how it may or may not provide clues to Jon Snow's future on whether winter will finally arrive? Yep. Will Kit Harrington still have the best hair at the Emmys? Double yup. Will Robin Wright be asked what she's wearing and who she's wearing? Yes. Will we recognize the designer? Maybe. But again, it won't matter because House of Cards won't win anything anyway. That's right, it's going to be a Mad Men, Game of Thrones, Transparent, John Hamm, Viola Davis, Jeffrey Tambor, Amy Poehler, Peter Dinklage, Lena Headley, Ty Burrell, Mia Bialik, The Amazing Race, Daily Show, and Nexedia Incorporated Kind of Night. Wait a minute. Who's Nexedia, you say? Well, they're the technology company that won the Emmy for Phonetic Indexing and Timing. That's right, I gave you the Emmy Award winner for Phonetic Indexing and Timing. You can thank me for that later. We're complete here at PNR. Joe and I are here to give you the best actor, the most compelling drama, and the most awesome red carpet experience you can get. So let's get this award-winning show on the air. And to help me do that is my friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the guy whose answer to who are you wearing is simply orange. Mr. Joe Polizzi, how are you, my friend? Congratulations on your Browns. Oh, hey. Has there even been a time that the Browns and the Cowboys won in the same day? I mean, I know you win a lot more than we do, but we, you know, this is, this is actually quite a feat. It's a very, it's a very, very nice week. Mine came at great expense, but uh, yes, it's. I know Mr. Romo's going to be out for a while. Yes, but Johnny, Johnny football, Johnny football, Johnny football is Johnny football again. Yeah, there you go. I mean, holy smokers, he was good today. Everyone was in shock when an actual touchdown was scored at Brown Stadium today. We scored, (laughs) we scored four of them. We were in shock. And pilot no mentions fl- of Mudville were made. <laughs> you know, it's so weird. Pilot Flying J, you know, that's the company that the owner owns, um, Jimmy Haslam. And he had a really weird coupon out. Like, if we score 24 points, <laughs> row 509 gets a $24 gift card. And I'm looking at it. I said, when is the last time we've scored 24 points? And what kind of a stupid promotion is <laughs> that? Kind of a, that's a safe coupon. And then, sure. oh, and then we score the last touchdown. And there it goes on the board. Section 509 gets a $24 gift card. I'm like, well, thank God for that. That is fantastic. Just, yeah. Now, are you in Section 509? No, 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 no. no. Oh, all right. But I was very happy for those three people. Those in Section 509. They were getting their $24. Oh, they were, yeah, they were already gone. But uh, anyway, I can't believe it's been 97. Is that right? 97. We have three more shows until episode number 100. What are we going to do? I think we should do 100 like in song. Or naked, one of the two. Well, we I mean, always that would do it naked, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, that's just that's all ninety-seven. It's <laughs> oh, that's know. true. I think I we should do it that. as a musical. Oh, this that old would be marketing good. the musical. That I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. We'll call it. We'll call it down with inbound marketing. Down with inbound. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Something. Anyways, do we? Anyway, did, were there any news this week? We're, at it all? was a slow news week. Weirdly enough, it was a little hard to come up with a lot of different things other than talking a lot about iOS nine and Apple and all of that. Before we get to the news, we do want to issue one correction. Oh, yes. yes, thank um, you. Which is uh, Joe's rant and rave uh, last week, which was just hysterically funny. Was this note that came from purportedly came from John Cleese, and as we has been pointed out to us by numerous people many, on social people. media. And email, and yes, we get it. <laughs> it's not the the link to Snopes will be put into the show notes. It was not created by John Cleese, but uh, funny nevertheless. But uh, not um, uh, there you go. But we don't right. know. We don't know who 
right? It's not. We, I, it's not clear. Yeah, it's not clear. It's been apparently floating around since about 2005, um, and actually was issued around right around the time the first uh, bus bombings happened in London, and that was when it first uh, made its emergence. It could be Donald Trump. For all we know. <laughs> well, let's know. It would not be Donald Trump because it's actually got wit about it. And so there's yeah, there's no huge in in there anywhere in the text. Exactly. So it's or not. nor loser or yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Our first news item comes to us. We're gonna pair a couple of different articles together here. Um, one of them comes from marketingland.com and the other from Folio Mag. And this is really just teeing up a, and I want to totally get your take on this, Joe, because it tees up a really interesting conversation about where advertising is in general. So the first article from Marketing Land talks a lot about iOS 9 and the much made ado about feature of ad blocking within the Safari browser in iOS 9, which is going to come as a standard feature now. Something I didn't know which after reading this article I do now, is it doesn't come really as a standard feature within the Safari. It actually comes integrated into many of the ad blockers you can buy um, on the actual store. And so the interesting, the article here points out that in many cases, those blockers that you can actually purchase within the store now, they've been dubbed ad blockers, but it's not just ads that they can actually block. Many of them can block things like analytics or content or other kinds of things that are much more expansive than just banner ads. Um, and then quickly, and then I want to get your take on the first part of that, Joe, is, is this article from Folio Mag, which is really about its title is Advertising's Existential Moment, which I think this is sort of a nice tipping point here. The value of traditional advertising is just no longer clear. And this goes on a few trends that this author has noticed um, about how advertising has really started to become commoditized to the point where its future is really no longer clear. So what did you take out of both of these things? Are, are, we, are we truly at advertising's existential moment and don't know where to go next? Well, there's an issue for digital advertising, but the first thing that I just have to – I'm totally surprised by the amount of trackers that will be blocked in this new update. I mean when they oh, go through yeah. – like the article goes through the New York Times and what they have 39 different trackers up. Yeah, and exactly. And and realistically, that means if I've got some kind of an analytics tracking software on there, and like New York Times has many, many, as, as many sure, other companies do, that they're not going to get their data. And that's just, I mean, that's an issue for everyone. I don't, I mean, I... Is, am I reading into that correctly? Like, literally... You're, no, you're absolutely... Be- no, you're absolutely... I mean, I think what... You know, certainly ad blockers and content blockers have been around for a long time. You know, this is not, this is nothing new. Uh, It has just not been made sort of generally, you know, this, the kind of thing that you had to be kind of really passionate about blocking ads before you really went to the trouble of installing an ad blocker or a plug into your browser to really take care of that. And I think what, uh, Apple is doing by making it sort of a standard feature within the the new OS is really saying, you know what, it, this is the new normal, right? So it is now going to be a normal thing for us to think about blocking these things. And now the real, if that genie gets out of the bottle, the real question is how much, how far will consumers take it? Because they don't care if the their visit gets tracked and they don't care if they're targeted to and personalized to and they don't care if they see ads. So it's a really interesting time, I think, for for these, you know, I was reading and I when I was doing the research for for my talk at, at Content Marketing World, I was looking the IAB just put out, you know, first of all, they put out just this year what it means to actually view an ad. And they actually called this year the year of transition because they said 100% viewability for your ads is quite frankly un- you know, you, unattainable. You will never get there. 70% is about all you're ever going to be able to attain. And I think that number may even go lower. The mm-hmm. expectations of how many of our ads are actually ever going to get viewed is just going to continually be eroded by this by this trend. Well, and then you get into the programmatic issue where what what was the percentage in one of these articles that like 35% of the uh, of your content is is actually robots so i mean that's that, right. that's, so you're not going to get who's who's viewing my stuff it's yeah, you know 35% exactly. robots and i can't even tell the other 65% i don't even know cuz safari's blocking everything the 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 issue that i had I guess it's not a revelation because you and I have been talking about it for a long time, but this is just puts everything into the brand business model court 
for what we've been talking about with content marketing. It's like, cause you don't need advertising. And for the most part, it's still the, the Forbes of the world, the fortune of the world, the New York Times of the world. They need advertising to survive. And yet we're coming with all of these, you know, whether it's the iOS 9 and the blockers that are going on or the programmatic issues that we're having. That business model is as in trouble as it's ever been. And it's going to be worse tomorrow. So it's just, it just sets it up like, it's almost like brands, when you have a business model with your content that you're trying to sell more products and services and gender loyalty in some way, generate an own audience, get your subscribers going, you have such an amazing uh, advantage, I would say, over any of the media companies out there today because they're still beholden to advertising and they haven't been able to move that business model fast enough, even though we've been talking about it for seven years. Yeah. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. And I think, you know, so ironically here and in a twist, you know, and this is an article that we didn't actually, maybe I'll try and find it while we're, while we're doing the show and, 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 and we can link to it in the show notes is one of the articles that I read this week also talked about how TV advertising spending is actually up this year. And I wonder if this is truly a failure of us to be able to recognize how to approach digital advertising in a different way than we have thought of. Because if you think of digital ads, the banner ad, right? We have, from even the look of a digital ad, we have taken right out of print, right? The quarter page, half page, Mm -hmm. full page idea. And we've, you know, and now we've added the pop up and the pop under and the pop through and the pop up over through and you know i mean we, we've done all of that right but all of it really takes its roots in print and it's basically a single segmented piece of content in a quarter half page full page slot that we put some sort of creative thing that tries to entice people to click through and i wonder is as television advertising which has sort of been linear in nature and sort of more you have to either skip it entirely in a linear fashion as you're watching a show in your DVR or you have to sit through it or get up and go to the bathroom while it's going on. If that in some way isn't sort of some indication that that's where advertising's future is, I'm not saying this very well, but, but, but it's, this, it's this idea of if we're going to look at digital advertising as something that can actually evolve, how do we actually start to look at it in a way that create this goes a little bit to the rant that I'll get on at the end of the show, but how can we start looking at it as a way to deliver stories instead of a way to instead of a way to sort of just stick up a, a print ad in the middle of a digital page? Well, I, I, yeah. you're right. I think the model it was just hey, this is how we've done it forever. How does that? How do we move that over to the digital world? And that's what happened. And it just doesn't work that way. Obviously, the behavior is much different, and we totally screwed up that opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, it's not well. The the, the future of, I mean, that's where we could get into the conversation right now. That BuzzFeed and Vox and those other companies, the majority of their advertising. I mean, even in one of these articles, thirty five percent of Forbes uh, advertising revenue is coming from their brand voice program, their native yeah. program. So, And yeah. that's just going to continue because banners and buttons aren't working. So, so does that mean in three to five years, we simply won't be seeing any banners and buttons anymore? They're just not going to exist. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, and and I guess that's what you just said that much more articulately than I did. But that's that's exactly what I was trying to say, which is, you know, and it gets really to that that second article, which is written from a publisher's perspective, quite frankly, and when they looked at the trends out there of why advertising is in this existential space, and two of the trends that really jumped out of me of the five, they said, they said one is that, adver- and this is just a very, I think, a, a very astute observation, is that what advertisers now buy are slices of audiences across different media properties rather than media properties themselves. And so that means that the, any one media company has much less leverage, you know, than, you know, it's, in other words, if you're in a marketplace where you serve up, you know, full meals and you basically have people coming in and buying little pieces of ingredients at each one, you know, by inherently your margins are thinner. And so you can't sell the big, all-inclusive, wonderful, high-margin package. You have to sell them the thinnest margin against the slice of an audience that they're trying to get. And that has just sort of, E, you know, eked its way down to the point where, 
really every publisher is just trying to eke out as much real estate as they possibly can to eke out any dollars they can, and it's just a race to the bottom. Yeah, programmatic is great for the buyers. I think it's yeah, ter- exactly, I think it's right? terrible for the sellers. I mean, that's right. Even though the even though the article says that there's some higher CPMs and and that time is not throwing their you know really uh, you know, remnant space, the really bad space that they have that's going to get a really low CPM. They're trying to to put some premium stuff in there, but really you don't want to sell that. What you want to sell are you want to sell direct relationships. That's right. That's I mean, because you're going to get the higher CPMs or however you do your sponsorship packages, and it absolutely is a race to the bottom. And that's where I think that I mean, I, you and I talk to a lot of publishers, but when you when they when you go out in front of them and you say, "Look, you have to start selling products and services. This you have to change your business model." We've been saying it for years, and they're all shaking their heads. Yeah, we're doing. It. We got to do it. We got to do it. But yet, right. they're not they're not moving fast enough because you've got. You know, granddaddy in the back advertising, paying all the bills, and they don't want to let go of that. They that's don't want right. to let go of that cash cow, and pretty pretty soon it's going to bite them. And that's I, right. I, I they're don't... just so scared they're going to break it that they're just they're just letting it sort of bend and buckle under its own weight. And it's just it's an amazing thing to watch happen. They'd be better off the, the creating sub brands and just going the way that BuzzFeed and Vox have gone, and not even worry. <laughs> But the way yeah. they've sold in the past is just try to split up their audience that way, or like Huffington Post has done, and now they have whatever two hundred fifty different blogs on yeah. their site, doing it that way, just slicing up the audience that way. So you don't, you're not, you know, you don't have to say, oh, and now we got to go into this programmatic deal, which is just not working for them. Yeah. So. Well, and so it segues nicely. So speaking of those two publications in particular, and the Forms Brand Voice, which is so our next. Uh, two articles that we're going to pair together. This is sort of the show of pairing, I think. But but the, is the first, again, comes to us from Marketing Land, which is a study that was done. And the headline is, Consumers Can't Tell the Difference Between Sponsored Content and Editorial. And this this basically, this article talks about no matter what kinds of disclosures or design tweaks or whatever the sponsored articles are getting – on these leading online publications, consumers continue to confuse sponsored content, aka native advertising, with actual articles, according to this latest survey from Contently. And then, just literally at the end of last week, Contently put out an update, and big hat tip here, by the way, to James Gardner, who sent this over to us as a story idea. Basically, Contently came out and then said, okay, but look, there's a follow-up. This is almost a – it's a weird point counterpoint to this thing where they basically say, look, last week we published this in-depth study that said consumers uh, you know, can't tell the difference between a sponsored content and editorial. But then if you actually ask them, all of them hate it, right? If, in other words, they all feel – and then they, not all because interestingly enough, the percentages here are you know, almost evenly split in half um, – which is either I don't know or I don't care or I really care, right? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like it's either I absolutely felt feel misled and absolutely can't stand this or eh, whatever, I don't I don't give a crap. And so what I mean, so what do you think about this? Is this are we actually let me ask you this this way. Do you think native advertising is kind of the uh micro cassette or the laser disc of advertising, right? Uh, yes. If, the answer you know? is absolutely yes. I totally agree with that, and we've said yeah. it many times. And I'll, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face that I think native advertising is this side step that publishers are trying to figure out how do we get away. We just talked about the advertising thing. They're trying to figure out. I say, oh, they're going to run to native, and the brands at the same time. They're trying to figure out how do I get into really creating this own media platform, creating my own audience. But I'm right. not there yet, so let's do this native advertising campaign. And they both met in the middle, and for the last two years, it's been glorious, right? It's been amazing yeah. because we were all on the same page, and this is great. But yet, if you look at this, by the way, hats off to – we've had – see, this is the way the research should be done. You've got Contently really going to town on this stuff. We talked about NewsCred last week. So a lot of people – I mean, you research is so critical to your overall content marketing program. Anyways, they do, do a great job of it. I, I think that what this is saying ultimately is – yeah, you can dabble in native advertising if you want, but the real thing you should do is just create your own platform. Just, yeah. That's I, I wouldn't I mean, we talk about stealing audience all the time with using native and I still think that you should look at that and I don't know if you agree with that, but I still think that's an opportunity for brands. But man, 
this all this says to me in these five charts that uh, that contently are thrown out at us is what you should be doing is building your own platform, building your own audience, and stop wasting everybody's time. I think it's a great yeah no I think it's I think it's a great point and I and I think it's there is an immediate opportunity there interestingly and this is teasing up a little bit of a research study we just completed and we're actually just in the midst of 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 writing the results of it out um, is we we did our own little study here to look at native advertising and sort of its growth here and what we found was is that very few of our audience the content marketers that we sort of uh, know and love have been trying it, but those very small percentages that have have been finding some general success with it. And so I do think it's a temporary opportunity to steal audience. I think it's an opportunity to build some awareness for your approach or use it as a way to preach something out there and get and get and pull in some traffic into trying to convert them to, you know, subscribe to your own platform. But I think if you do it as a just another way to do paid media, then you'll ultimately be frustrated with it because it is just paying for, you know, renting eyeballs and, and having them do something. If you use it as an opportunity to pull in that audience and start to build your own subscription asset audience, then I think I think you have a I think you have a much better shot of taking advantage of the immediate and maybe short term opportunity that native advertising provides. Mm-hmm. But don't you think it's just the, it's this uh short-term spiral that's sort of going around and around feeding on itself with these publishers that have created these you know quote-unquote content studios and they're going out and they're they're talking to brands and they're not saying hey go let's go help you tell great stories and create your own platform and build your audiences they're not doing that they're saying let's take your advertising dollars and start telling stories you could tell them on our platform and we'll do it as a campaign very short-term campaign well they're not doing it yet well who's not doing it yet no, they're not. They're not doing it. I, I agree with you. They're not doing it yet. Who's they're, not? In other words, they're not. They're not building. They're. They're not going out there and saying, "Let's build your own platform." Exactly. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So, but what I'm saying is, is that they are probably make they as in publishers and the content studios within those publishers are making, and I don't want to. It's not all of them, but a good <laughs> chunk of them are making poor recommendations because they're absolutely going at all these brands and saying, "We will help you with your." campaign this short-term thing and we will get you lots of attention on our platform which is in everything that we're looking at in these two articles says go the other direction yeah i think that's exactly right but i and what i meant by my comment was i think we're going to see it i think probably before the end of the year but certainly as we get into 2016 we're going to see one of these forward-leaning publishing companies start to get into the business of creating owned media properties for for their clients for their clients and maybe and maybe you know maybe lending their branding expertise maybe lending their publishing expertise maybe acting as the you know in-house publishing arm of a brand um, but I think, you know, we've talked about this before, why some publishing company hasn't gone to another company like Marriott and said, hey, Marriott, you see what Marriott's doing? We can do that for you, right? We can actually create your, your content studio and build media properties for you. You fund them and we'll, we'll build and operate them. I, well, it's, it's, that's, it's, 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 yeah, that's happening. I mean, like, you know, I go well, back. Sure. Go back. Yeah, well, I mean, I Meredith, mean, I the Meredith do, does it right. Every, Meredith every, does it everyone does. I'm yeah. used to do it at yeah. Pet and Custom Media. The difference right. is, is that when you're working with the different brands in the company, they want it associated with their brand because they want to generate direct revenue off it. They don't want the uh, the content studio or the centralized department saying, "Oh, yeah, go work with my." Uh, go work with my brand, and then you can take all the money for that. I mean, it's not right. that most most publishing companies aren't set up that way. Right. So they say, "Oh yeah, That's what you I can mean. tell, you can create all the stories you want for our brand. Yeah, I'll let you take a little bit of that advertising budget, but you better run it on my platform." Yeah. So it's it's a little bit you have that internal politics that yes, I think that will happen and it is happening to some extent, but. There again, it goes back to our original conversation. They they want to go back to that cash cow of advertising. They want it on their own platform, and they don't want to do contract for hire. And that's what it is. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Well, what's the answer? What's the answer, Joe? Tell us the answer. I want the answer. 
Do you want the who you want it? For? I want the I'll answer. tell you. I'll, I'll, the, you know, we're gonna bring it all out right now. Answer. We're gonna bring it out on nine <laughs> episode ninety seven. It's gonna come out right now. You wouldn't want the Uh-oh. answer for publishers or brands. I'll tell you right now. I, I want the answer for publishers. I want the answer. I want the truth. <laughs> Man, I would. I don't want to. I would not want to be a publisher today. It's a hard I, job. I, it's a hard job for be, sure. Because I actually think somebody asked me this. I did an interview the other day, and they said. You know, what's the difference between media companies and brands that are doing content marketing? <laughs> Sounds like this setup to a joke. No, ex- <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I could go that direction, but I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I said, from a business model standpoint, they're doing the exact same things. It's just the money's coming in differently, and the problem right. is, is that the it's easier if you have the patience in your organization you have, and you have buy-in in your organization it's easier to say hey we can show a difference between in the behavior of our subscribers on the brand side it is much easier to go that direction than to monetize it through advertising and sponsorship on the others it it, yeah. it just is it's just a harder business model, and that's why I think that you, we talked about what was it? Probably five episodes ago, where New York Times had their little experimental group right. going yep. on. I can guarantee you that every one of those experiments has something to do with selling products. Yes, because exactly. they can't. Yeah, yeah. What's the joke? What's the what's the, what's the punchline? <laughs> it's certainly not safe for work. Whatever oh my it is, God, that's that will save that for the. For the musical, for the for episode number one hundred when we're when we're naked. Okay, (laughs) so hey, well, speaking of monetizing in different ways, this was an article. Our next our next uh, article of the show is is a really interesting one to me because it's about a company that has struggled for a way to monetize and get and and get successful. So Twitter, um, and this article actually comes to us courtesy of Social Media Today. Um, Big hat tip to Angela Hirsch here for sending this over, um, who very appropriately pointed out in her tweet to us, as she pointed out the story that they totally buried the lead here. Um, But anyway, Twitter announces a new deal with Bloomberg, which really illustrates the value of social data. And the way the article starts out, which is just fascinating, actually, Basically, back in March, uh, a Wall Street Journal reporter named Dana Medioli tweeted out this breaking news, and this breaking news was about um, a particular company, Altera, at the time, and it was basically the Altera had broken this news, and she was tweeting it out, and within minutes, more than $110,000 worth of options in Altera had been purchased by one specific buyer. And by the end of the day, those options had increased in value from $110,000 to $2.4 million. And so we've, you know, heard about day trading and about the, you know, micro trading and microsecond trading and, and, and all that. And this goes to this uh, point that these options were purchased incredibly fast, faster than any human and a bot. And this is well-worn toward territory for anybody in financial services. This is something I've been chatting with my all of my clients in financial services about in terms of the way and trends that they're dealing within their business, which is, of course, these automated trading systems that are making trades in micro and, I mean, thousandths of a second. And interestingly, they were setting up this program to scan Twitter for financial news and then react immediately to it, buying and selling faster than humans could possibly react. It's a fascinating trend here. But anyway, this deal, and this is where the lead of the story is totally buried, the deal here is is that Bloomberg is basically going to make a deal with Twitter and to integrate tweets for its customers. So those people that are subscribers to Bloomberg services, financial news services, um, are going to basically be able to really start to see an analysis of a Twitter feed and the basically the, the data coming through Twitter in order to optimize the buys that they may want to do. Now, I, so first of all, do you have a take on this? Did, do you, did, did you did you come away with it? Because I totally have something that's not related to financial services, but it's totally something that I think is great for. No, I want to I want to hear your take. Get, let me hear the take. Go ahead. So here it is. Right, one of the things. This to me is such a great example of the value of data aside from the immediate sort of. Uh, indication of what that value might be. And the, I think the lesson here for content marketers, and it's such an important one, and this is the one that I was, I've been trying to get through to limited success. I tried to get through in my, my blog post about ROI and my talk at ROI. I was much more successful with it, by the way, in my talk at Content Marketing World than I was at on my blog post, which I almost want to rewrite at this point. But it, 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 it the idea that 
driving value through content marketing isn't always about the immediate indication of what we think it is. In other words, more leads or higher quality leads or more traffic or higher converting leads. or That's where we have focused for so long. And some of the best examples of content marketing that I know out there are monetizing, quote unquote, their content marketing platforms based on the data that they're getting out of that platform, not having anything to do really with purchase intent and or sales of products. And, and I use this example way too often, but it's just such a great one, which is, of course, craft. And what Kraft and they have been able to do by decreasing the research costs that brand managers have to do, as well as increasing their company-wide, firm-wide intelligence about their audience, their subscribers, their customers, by using that basically content marketing platform in order to build the most industry-leading database of those customers that are out there. And to me, that is a perfectly wonderful, amazing sort of goal for a content marketing platform to have in addition to let's open up the top of the funnel, let's get more leads and let's get more higher converting leads and let's use that to drive direct marketing campaigns and all that stuff. And it's just so rarely looked at that way. And when I talk to a CEO about that, when I say, how good is your customer database right now? And they usually say, oh, not very. It's not, it's not very accurate and it's not very you know, detailed and we don't have a lot of information. And the marketing database doesn't talk to the customer database and all that. And I said, what if a content marketing platform's goal, what if your owned media property's goal was only that? was to basically tie together the value of your marketing database with the value of your customer database and make sure those things were much more valuable than they currently are. And they go, yeah, that would be great. And I'm like, awesome. I mean, it's so it, to me, this is such a great personification of that lesson of how Twitter's data is actually being used to make better decisions. And it, we always think of it as content and Twitter and twi- Twitter so ephemeral and who cares. But there's really a value there in sort of looking at it in conglomeration and aggregate that really pulls together something valuable. I know. I sorry, I went off on a bit of a rant there, but I, I just really, I really love this article for that reason. No, that's okay. I, I was just, I figured you'd just take over the rest of the episode. No. <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry, dude. <laughs> so I'm so sorry. No, it's, oh my it's god, a, it is yeah. an absolutely great point. My question to you is, would that person that said that's an absolutely great idea, do you think they would actually pull the trigger now on something like that? They are. They, they are. They, okay. they did. They so did, and real, are pulling the trigger on exactly thing. that. Yeah. Okay. It just it made the business case for that for, for that set for that CEO. It it totally made the business. He said, "I have not thought of it that way before." And you're totally right. That is a very valuable thing, and we should put money behind that. And you know, we can figure it. And he said the magical thing to me is he said we can figure out later if it drives more leads. But if it if its only purpose is to unify our marketing database and make it accurate and help to make our customer database more accurate and valuable then it's earns its keep Mm -hmm. it earns its keep no i mean that so you're spot on with your take my totally irrelevant takes on this article were the fact that i i'm twitter is still viewed as how much advertising can twitter sell uh and then how much how valuable are they i mean twitter stock has just been horribly performing over the past year and a half it's just been terrible right. one of the worst it's just well they're just waiting for the goog to come in and, well and, exactly and well to, yeah because to, you predicted that what i uh, did i, stand, I stand by that and you prediction. and you absolutely i'm i'm waiting for that to happen but i think that's <laughs> that's the thing is that is that i wish they would go out and this is just in their communication and stop talking about advertising revenue growth and those opportunities and re- and they do talk about it but they they sort of bury the lead on the data play yeah because twitter is all about the data play and the only sub the only other side note on this is just when i read this article on twitter and the bloomberg deal was the opportunities for content ideation as well as finding oh it's just i mean finding your own exactly well we talk about the sweet spot all the time like what is we talk about this in the book like what is your content tilt and how can you find an area of differentiation or little to no competition using Twitter and then Google Trends, as Andrew Davis talks about all the time. I don't think brands use this enough. They still come first at, here's what we want to talk about, instead yeah. of, boy, if you if you could really look at this the way that they're looking at it for the stock market, you could uncover 
untapped content niches that you could fill immediately, but most brands aren't looking at it this way. They're still looking That's at right. it. Here's the story. They're still it's still brand out. Right? The brand is always the hero of the story, right? That's Not right. the audience. If we could switch that and we were focused on the audience, I think we would look at these tools. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But anyway, so I didn't mean to go off on a long thing there, but it, but it, I I loved it. I loved it for that lesson, and I didn't think that that lesson was immediately evident from the article. So I just I, that's why I wanted to it bring was, it out. It, it was, was just to me. It's such a great. It's such a great example of that. It was fantastic. Oh, thank I you. I really enjoyed your thank your you. rave and rant. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our last segment of the show here uh, before we get into our wonderful sponsor and rants and raves and this old marketing and all that kind of stuff is dun 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 this article comes to us from mashable.com and okay so quick so the 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 title of the article here the headline is a facebook dislike button is coming um you guys probably knew we were going to cover this because it's been all over social media but okay so before we jump into this i have to give one quick other small rant i feel like i've been ranting all show but this is on the state of web design. So if have have you ever have you gone to Mashable lately? Yes. I mean uh, I, I'm on it right now and actually it's a shockwave flash has crashed. That's yes, what I'm there looking you go. at right I mean, now. I can't go to, so these websites today, these kids today, these <laughs> websites today, I show up and I literally have to I load the page and I sit and wait. Because the article's going to go up, and then it's going to go down, and then it's going to shift sideways, and then it's going to shift another way. So it's like all these third-party modules that are loading, whether they're ads or they're big images or they're background ads, and it's going to shift down into some parallax well, That's what thing. the other I mean, article said. They've got, 50, like, they've got 50 trackers on it right now. I mean, they've got to load all that crazy. Yeah. I mean, so I literally have to load the page and just wait for it to stop. And I've got a good bandwidth connection, but anyway, I don't get off on a rant here. But just this web design is just going a little nuts and mashable like a bad example of that. So anyway, the article starts out by saying, after years of speculation and member requests, Facebook, dun-dun-dun, according to our friend Mark Zuckerberg, is finally working on something like a dislike button. He, Zuckerberg, has said, it's going to come out, it's not going to be about downvoting posts, but it's going to be about something around sentiment. In other words, and this, I think, is an interesting discussion because I've seen a couple of different responses to this. You know, this is the sort of thing where my dog died, right? And you don't want to like that that post, but you want to let them know that you have empathy for them. And so I guess what they're trying to say is is that the dislike button will be a way for you to say – I like it, but not saying I enjoyed what you just wrote. I'm actually feeling empathy with you. Now, to me, that's like saying, well, that's like Twitter saying, well, here's what the share, you know, what, what yeah. the, you know, this little star button is for. And it's like, no, the star button is basically you giving the thumbs up to a tweet. Let's be honest. The users decided what that feature was going to be. And I think it's interesting here. I think you may find that the dislike button gets beyond what Facebook has in mind. What do you think about this? If, I believe that if it's what you said it's going to be, it's a really bad idea. Yeah, well, I just yeah. do not. And, I'm I, and I don't. Right. And I think yeah. they're smarter than that. I don't think. I see. I thought all along that we were going to have a dislike button, which would be the I don't want to see any more stuff like this. Yes. That's what I thought, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what you said. Is that? Oh yeah, okay. I want to be more empathic about this thing, so or empathetic, so. Empathic. What, that's totally different. That doesn't mean that thing. What, empathetic, right? Is that what I want? Yeah, yeah. It's right. late it's at like, night. I've been. I went to the Browns no, no, game. You're empathic. You know, you're. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah. You're, oh, so you're, so yeah. I yeah. I think it's a bad idea. I wouldn't do it. But you know, they're smart people and multi billionaires. So I'm sure they they know what they're doing. Well, how does I mean? So the question is, and this is one of the questions that got raised by one of the PR social agencies that I follow was basically this could be a good you know a good measurement triangulation point for brands posting stuff because if the dislike button gets used on this that's lets them know that it didn't resonate as effectively as a like button but i don't know that i yeah i, I, I would, know that it does i would say if they're going to but if they're going to do actually. it if they're going to do the dislike button that it's a personal thing and like i don't think they should i don't think it should be like an upvote like what they're talking about or a downvote i don't I don't know how they know. I don't know how it. I mean, look. I don't know how they don't do that, right? In other words, I don't know how the audience doesn't get to decide what the down what what a dislike button means. 
You know, in other words, if I post something just, you know, if Donald Trump posts something about not correcting a guy that's, you know, basically saying Obama's Muslim, right, which is just a stupid thing to say, regardless of your politics, and everybody starts disliking that, are they feeling empathy for Trump or are they telling him that he's an idiot, right? And so I think at some point you start to have to assign it a meaning which the audience determines, not you determined. Yeah, I think that's a place for the comments, but what do I know? I mean, right. that's I, where I, I think where people yeah. put those reactions in the comments. And and it's a fairly positive place. Like if you go in there and say, oh, man, I was at like – I said, oh, hey, we're at the game today watching Johnny yeah, Football exactly. play. And if I get like 10 people not liking that, I'm going to like – I'm going to be upset. I'm not going to like that anymore. I said, right. I'm like, I'm a, I don't want to go back to Facebook because I don't want people smearing my picture <laughs> right, that I was exactly. all – So I think that's going to be the issue. I don't know. Yeah. There's some- All right. Well, that's enough about that. We'll click. We'll both collectively click the dislike button on the dislike button. How about that? I think that that's the best. Or the musical button. That's well, how about the, How about clicking the big thumbs up, like button, love button on our sponsor? Absolutely. This old marketing is sponsored by Studio D, a division Ba-da-ba-da. of Demand Media. In the content marketing files, lessons learned from the last decade, you'll learn the ins and outs of content strategy, creation, and distribution. You'll find over a decade of data. (laughs) You're making me laugh, man. (laughs) Sorry. Skadoosh. You'll find over a decade of data and thought leader tips to help you nail your strategy, track ROI, and publish content that resonates with your target audiences. And we've talked about this piece before. We love it. Uh, Studio D and, you know, it's demand, fantastic well, piece, in, really in demand media, I mean, they have the experience. They've gone through the ups and downs of what, you know, Google was going through with their, you know, here's, you should have 200 word posts and 500 word posts and whatever. And they were trying to adjust to all that. And now they're really getting into, hey, we need really need quality storytelling. And they go through this in their content marketing files. You can download this guide now at go.studiod.com slash ebook. That's go.studiod.com slash ebook. And by the way, make sure you go to studiod.com, check out their new uh, website, new branding, all kinds of fun stuff. And we're super, super thankful for all their support. But download it when you can, support our sponsors. We'd appreciate it if you did. It's just a fabulous, fabulous piece. And thank you. Thank you so much to Studio D for sponsoring. It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece. Go download it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your favorite part of the show, our rants and rave section, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that makes us feel like we've won an Emmy Award or something that makes us feel like, you know, we're not winning an Emmy Award, something like that. Um, you're going first, I, I think, am. because uh, you have this old marketing this week. I am, absolutely. And I have to do, uh, in, in this show of rants, I'm going, I know you have a rant coming up, correct? I do. All right, so I'll let you do the rant. I'm going to do a rave. Uh, as as those people that were at Content Marketing World know, when I did the opening keynote at the event, I talked about, and this was really, was what was amazing about that talk, it came from your our conversation that we had on where is the industry going. And then you brought up the whole idea of the Gartner hype cycle. And I said, wow, that's, I mean, that's. By the way, you're getting all the credit for that now, as it should be. But just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not bitter or anything. Look at, here's the deal. (laughs) I throw out your name whenever I say, hey, this is not my idea. It's Robert. But nobody listens. They all give me the credit. I don't know what the deal is. Exactly. I can't stop them. They just it just keeps the adulations just keep coming. I just I don't know. What to it say. would be rude to interrupt. It them. would be yes, rude. I, yeah, it, it would, would be rude be. to okay. just stop right. people and I say no, no, no. All this right. is not my idea. Yeah, exactly. I, even though I completely I stole it. it. Anyways, so this is uh, I'm talking about uh, Doug Kessler and Velocity Partners. Uh, so he does a great blog, and you and just I both fabulous. Well, oh you and God, I both talk, so good. talk about how we're just angered that he's such a good writer. Yes. And, and he, anyways, he broke down the opening keynote and talked about it. And he was surprised because I wasn't the positive Joe that I normally am, am in the opening. Because I usually come out and say, it, content marketing is bigger than ever and it's all awesome and it's going to change the world. And I said, we're really at an inflection point here. And Doug really probably said it better than I did 
going through the five different phases of the Gartner hype cycle. If you're not familiar with it, basically it starts at some technology trigger. And we know that content marketing started in that way with, you know, no barriers to entry from a publishing standpoint. Consumers have 24 seven access to content. So that was the technology trigger that even though content marketing has been around for hundreds of years, it really started to take off at that point when this thing called the internet was born. And then we got to this point called peak of inflated expectations. And I really thought, and you and I talked about this on the show. I don't know what episode it was, probably 20 episodes ago. We were talking about how maybe that was nine months to 12 months ago that we really saw the the peak of content marketing as a buzzword and everybody kind of jumping on board. And now we're really going into this, what we call the trough of disillusionment, which is this ominous phrase, but I really do think that, you know, you and I sort of went and, you know, more, mostly you, but then I added, of course, my flair to it. <laughs> I added an orange suit. You added five pieces of bling to it. I added an orange added, suit yeah. and called it mine <laughs> and basically went through and I said, this is the time when we will see the greatest failures in content marketing of our time, as well as the start or the continuation of some of the, the most amazing content marketing case studies we've ever seen. Yes, and you're right. And you're right. So we're both right on that one. But anyways, I just wanted to thank Doug because he just it's did a, such a great he just article. did a really good he just did a really good job. You've got to go to the post. We'll put it in the show notes and, and uh, it was interesting how he picked up on the surprise that, you know, I wasn't the big cheerleader like I normally am, but I think that I, I really like the point that he got the idea that in this one he made this orange especially for for us and he basically said you know so getting over the peak of disillusionment is really getting over ourselves and realizing that content marketing is not a magic wand but a rich difficult complex discipline oh, I love this line that so only works if it's combined with the right people and processes and guided by the right strategy exactly uh, you could just read that over and over again and it I just, just think it's it, so good yeah it's just yeah. music it's that's art that's what Seth yeah. Godin would call art right there. So I just wanted to you know, throw out the, the old uh, hat tip there to Doug Kessler. And uh, if you get a chance, and he might not like that, that I said this, but you and I were talking about it before. His post, I think one before this one, when you go on, is is <laughs> called inbound. Yeah. Is called Chairs, I think. And I literally, yeah. I had to send him a note on it. I was laughing is called talking to chairs at inbound 2015 and i felt so bad for him because you and i have both been there when you've got 400 chairs in front of you and there's like 10 people there and but he he communicated that story in such a way and i had to send him a note and just say that was the most amazing it was it was great if you go to conferences and see speakers and it was great if you're a speaker and you typically give those kinds of talks it was just from both sides of the both sides of the podium it was just a wonderful wonderful story that he absolutely told so anyways the, i guess to round this yeah. whole thing up thanks to doug but uh i'm like you have said like robert rose said <laughs> we we are going through the trough of disillusionment uh, and I actually, I talked to the Gartner folks and they were, yeah, of course, I know they agreement. were probably giddy with anticipation going, Oh, somebody's talking exactly. about the hype cycle. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, uh, we will, we will get to the slope of enlightenment and the plateau of productivity. I like how they, yes. they put those terms, but we're, we're headed in, I think we're headed in the right direction. And as we all know, you can not have true success without struggle. And I think a lot of companies are going to see struggle and the ones that are faking it aren't going to make it. And the ones that, that, are, exactly that are keeping right. the strategy and the execution are going to do a great job. So there you go. <clears throat> it's exactly right. Well, okay. So speaking of art, um, and I'm going to admit sort of straight up, full up, honest, open up the kimono that this rant is fully self-indulgent and kind of pointless. Um, is this so, different than your normal rant? Right. That's that's the Joe I know and love so much. I love you. Um, so this so this comes on the heels of uh, of, a, of an article that I read um, uh, in Folio uh, publisher, and the title of the article was "The Pros and Cons of the Era of Measurement." And it's basically this article written from the perspective of a publisher, and he's lamenting sort of the atmosphere and that we are in today, sort of talking about the performance focus, the, as he says, sort of overly focused um, idea of being in performance mode all of the time about 
writing as a publisher, creating content. And he talks about, you know, the Google problem, for example. Well, too short these days, you get a ding. Too long, you get a ding. If it's duplicated the wrong way across a different channel, you get a ding. And then the measurement focus, are you getting enough likes? Are you getting enough this? Are you getting enough that? Is it written in enough in a keyword enough way? And it's basically, it's taken a big sort of sheen off of the idea of creating high quality content. And, and it sort of reminded me of a couple of things. One was, one, one is this sort of article that was written um, a while back by this guy. I'm, I've talked about him on the show before, Tom Goodwin, who wrote an article that I, I on his LinkedIn blog, which I really loved, which is where he sort of missed the days of expensive advertising. And this is what, and the reason it reminded me of that is because he talks about in that article, the idea of Back when advertising was really, really expensive, it was you had to put a lot of creative into it. And he actually, and he, as he goes through the article, he sort of talks about the first time that his agency did a banner ad, and that there was no there was no real estate enough to do anything really interesting. So they quite literally did a text headline and a click here, and that's sort of what has become the sort of modus operandi for all digital ads now, right? So where we have really lost. Because of the commoditization and the inexpense, basically how cheap it actually is to do advertising, you know, as he said, you know, when you did a full page ad in Vogue or you did a full page ad in Wall Street Journal or something like that, it was like a thing. And actually being the actual existence of the ad itself was an important thing enough to put the high enough creativity to it so that it would actually in some cases become a piece of art. And he sort of laments that, it's not, and you know, it's, again, and no other reason than short, sort of lamenting those days. It's not that you know, not not too much full of a point here, but the idea of lamenting those days. And to me, it's just it's this where we are with content right now. Uh, and just a quick example of this: I'm coming home from a trip a couple of weeks ago. It was actually Content Marketing World. When I was coming home from Content Marketing World, I happened to be going down the escalator into this huge, long tunnel that connects the terminal with the sort of baggage claim area. And it's, as you might expect, it's one of those, it's a long enough haul that it's got the sort of uh, moving sidewalk escalator thing. And so imagine a haul that long. And imagine the entire wall is covered with Dreamforce ads. And so it's advertising the fact that Dreamforce is going to be happening that following week. But instead, they each in, about every 30 feet, it's just repeated. It's the same banner ad repeated every 30 feet for the full length of a 500 or 600 foot long hallway. And it's like, as, as I was moving, as I'm sitting on this moving escalator, sort of just looking at the ad repeating and repeating and repeating. And, and all the banner ad says is Salesforce, Dreamforce, Date. It's just repeating and repeating and repeating. I said, wow, what a missed opportunity there. 500 feet of creative space, and all they could think of doing was creating a simple banner ad that says Salesforce Dreamforce. And to me, it's just like they could have told a story there. They could have created something interesting. They could have done something interesting without that much more effort. But that's kind of the world that we live in today where – the advertising we're creating is so commoditized and focused on performance. And I think in some many ways, this is sort of where we are in content marketing right now. It's like, I know we need to perform. I know we're not doing an art project. But the more that we use performance and measurement as sort of the only baseline by which we produce content, I think we lose ultimately. One of the things that I that's really just impossible to measure is enthusiasm, right? So in the advertising world, we say, isn't it great? We get a click through, we got a conversion, we got whatever it was. But in content, there's this other thing that we should be striving for, which is enthusiasm and connection and those kinds of things are really hard to measure in any short sort of performance focused or myopically focused sort of world. And I don't really, as I said, don't have a point here other than to say, I wonder if there's a way we can start to swing the pendulum and balance toward creating wonderfully creative, artful, sort of Doug Kessler focused types of pieces of content that really focus on the quality and sort of just to balance some of that performance-focused measurement myopia that, that, we're, that we're in right now. Anyway, that's, that's my rant for this week. I think there's a, there's a growing portion of the industry that's trying to do that. I think, the, I think there is. I think that the people are feeling the way that you are. I mean, obviously, yeah. Doug Kessler does. I mean, he, yeah. almost every one of his speeches is around that. I mean, is this uh, 
insane. I think insane honesty was the name of his content marketing oh, it was world. Such a talk. great presentation. Yeah, no, it's a great presentation. And that, kind of, yeah, those those types of things where we we have to remember that you know telling an, an interesting story is is tantamount to you doing any of the ROI stuff that you're trying to figure out. And we're we're trying to or, we're trying to cut. It just makes the it more interesting, right? It's like you know, it just makes it more interesting. I'm with you, man. I was like, yeah. you know, fist pump out to you, man. I'm feeling it. I'm, no. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Exploding. Yeah, but this old pump. marketing to talk about. <laughs> All right. Here's my, here's my this old marketing. Uh, hat tip to Tom Tennant, who tagged me on Facebook with this. And I saw it right away. And I said, we've got to do this as of this old marketing. And I'll be very brief. But it, this is very personal as well. This must be the personal episode. Do you uh, did you ever go to a burger chef? I have never been to a. When you told me about this, I was like, I've never been oh, to so a burger chef, and now I want to go to. Yeah, a Yeah, so this chef. is it was big in Ohio. So I grew up in Sandusky, Ohio. We had a burger chef uh, right on Milan Road at the time. So it was like right next to Arby's and McDonald's and those types of things. But just, you know, just think. Of, I mean, basically a little bit. I think it was a little bit better of a McDonald's type of thing. Right. But this article it comes from doyouremember.com, which is a really interesting site. It's sort of a nostalgic site. And what's interesting is they talk about these happy meals, or they call them the fun meal, at Burger Chef. And, it's, and the article says, Burger Chef was one of the first chains to create characters and build stories and content around them. So in the 70s, they used to do this. They had monsters themes. They had this Fang Burgers family, and they added them to the mix. So these, these are, they were a gang of burger-loving vampires, which is <laughs> brilliant, mind you. A gang of now. There's a sentence I didn't think of here today. A gang of burger. You just keep vampires. listening, my friend. It's all going to come it. out. But I love it. But this is the part that I remember that my brother and I actually did. So I'll read this part because it's interesting. So one of the ways that Burger Chef brought its characters to life was through audio. A routine component of the fun meal was a flimsy plastic record, and you can only you you, you wouldn't think that this thing would even work on your Fisher Price. Uh, record player <laughs> but it did so you take it home you throw it on your fisher price player and you listen to the adventures of burger chef jeff and the fang burger family so uh and i remember doing this i couldn't believe it so when i saw these pictures i'm like oh my goodness and they had a lot of tie-ins to star wars in the late 70s they were they were all in to the first star wars when it came out in 77 they were all in doing all this stuff and they had but they had um, along with the happy meals and star wars stuff they would throw in all these fangburger audio things and i remember being so excited to go to the restaurant to go to burger chef yes i wanted a burger but I I wanted to go because I wanted that audio, I wanted to I wanted the story, I wanted to know what was going to happen with with wow, Jeff. That's cool. And you know, and you say it all the time, right? How do you create value outside of the products and services that you offer? And that was the value. I was actually going to the restaurant because I wanted to hear the stories. That's so cool. So, anyways, I just this hit me first. I just special thanks to to Tom for sending this to me, and uh, I just thought it was a perfect. This old marketing example, and I'm really sad. And just so people know, you know what had happened to Burger Chef. Burger Chef at the time was the second largest fast food chain to McDonald's in the United States, I believe. Uh, I'm reading this article. I believe that's what they said. And they were bought by Hardee's, and Hardee's didn't do much with them. No, it doesn't sound. Yeah, like it's it, right? a basically in 1982, the corporation sold the Burger Chef unit to Hardee's. After which, most burger chefs were either converted into Hardee's, which is really sad, sold to other operators, or closed. The last burger chef, a holdout franchisee that refused to change its branding, closed its doors in 1996. And that huh. is your This Old Marketing of the Week. I love that story. I absolutely love that story. We get the greatest examples from our oh, listeners. Cool. I'll tell you, man, this cool. is awesome. All right, so what's it? What's what's your what's your plan this week? What what do you got going? Uh, on? I have. Uh, uh, we're actually getting ready for Intelligent Content Conference. Believe it or not, I Content Marketing it. World's yeah. over. We've I got know. Content Marketing Show, our virtual event focused on I ROI. Just sent in my presentation right. for that. I'm very excited. That's in October. So all that's all of you interested in measurement and ROI, which we were talking about today, go to contentmarketingshow.com. But then I'm I'm really doing a lot for Intelligent Content Conference, which will be in Vegas. I think it's March 7th Vegas, the 9th. Vegas. March 7th and 9th, and we are really looking forward to that one. And then later this week, I've got a quick trip to Nashville 
uh, to speak to the good folks at Harper Collins, and I'm basically oh, doing nice. my talk on what I think uh, instead of somebody just launching a book, what they do to build an audience first nice. and then launch a book as part of that platform play. And I'm basically going through the whole Content Inc. model and then really talking specifically about the book. So nice, and or about the about how to launch a book within that platform. And you, yeah. you're traveling. This week, Correct. I am. I travel tomorrow. I am off to the lovely town of Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I'll be meeting with our good friend Lee Odin and a bunch of other people. And I'm speaking at the BMA event there on uh, Tuesday, uh, and then back home and 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 working through again for a much more extended trip, uh, which will happen uh, next week. Um, but uh, yeah, so very quick trip to Minneapolis and then home again. Sort of heads down working on stuff. Yeah, content marketing show presentations, new stuff. Well, I'm already working on the musical portion of episode 100. So that's all I'm going to do. I'm all over the choreography, my friend. I'm all over the choreography. Let's make it happen. All right, folks. (laughs) That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, we do love those story ideas, folks. Please tweet us up, hashtag this old marketing. Let us know what we should be talking about. And you know, if you've got a question or anything like that, and you like the email thing, send us an email, thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode number 97, three away from 100, we hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links we talked about today will be available in the show notes that are available on the show and, of course, on the show post that appears on Saturday at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, folks, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.